I have been specifically asked not to talk too much uh, because uh, it is not my lecture. Uh, that we have two very capable speakers, uh, starting with uh, the keynote that Professor Bertos will give us. And I was told, just restrict yourself to introducing him and go and sit down and shut up. Uh, but before I go and sit down and shut up, and before I introduce him, and before I um, uh, say something, just to acknowledge Professor Ted Matz, uh, also uh, the respondent uh, today, he will be introduced properly at the right time. The topic is, of course, one that, as, uh, as South Africans, we cannot... Uh, minimize or trivialize. It is not a theoretical topic uh, for us as South Africans. Reparations are in many ways what we are grappling with today. We don't always call it reparations. We have found all sorts of nicer, gentler euphemisms to talk about it, but actually it is at the heart of the, the problems we face in this country. And so it is quite an honor for us to welcome Professor Beckles to talk to us basically about ourselves and about the challenges we face as a country. I was reading an email from uh, March uh, just before I came here which reminded me that there is one billion rands uh, sitting in the office of the president, which is meant for victims of uh, apartheid atrocities, which for some reason is not being spent or not being dispersed. And um, it, it, it came home to me that, in fact, this continues to be a big uh, challenge that we face as a country. Recently, when I was in Europe, in... in um, in, in an underground train, someone was trying to persuade me how much uh, Europe, uh, Europe transport, uh, I won't mention the country in case you, uh, you influence them not to give me a visa next time, um, how much the transport in, in Europe is so much better and so much faster and how much they keep to time and all of that. And I was thinking, you know, would they have been able to do all those things without the contribution of the slaves? These things that amaze us today when we look at Europe, when we look at the USA, do we realize how much contribution has come from this continent, not only in sweat, uh, but also in blood? So I look forward to listening to Professor Beckles on this very important topic. Now. Let me quickly introduce him so that I can go and sit down as instructed. Professor Sir Hilary Beckles was born in Barbados. He attended secondary school in Barbados and in Birmingham in the UK. He received his higher education in the United Kingdom 
and graduated with a BA Honours degree in Economic History from Hull University in 1976 and a PhD from the same university in 1980. In 2003, he received an honorary Doctor of Letters for Outstanding Work as Scholar from his alma mater. He joined the History Department at the University of the West Indies, Mona Campus in 1979 as lecturer, 1984, he transferred to the Cave Hill campus in Barbados and was promoted to a personal professorship in 1993 at the age of 37. He was just one year older than I am now. I am 38. He won the first University of the West Indies Vice Chancellor's Award for Excellence in the field of research. 1998, he was appointed Pro Vice Chancellor for Undergraduate Studies. In August two, 2002, he returned to Cave Hill, this time as Pro Vice Chancellor and Principal. Professor Beckles, if I may just add, a few more things about him as a scholar. He has received many awards and accolades for his excellence in research and scholarship, three honorary doctorates, as I have already mentioned. But it's really his scholarly contribution to the field of Caribbean social and economic history that has been immense. He has written over 20 books and monographs including um, Natural Rebels, a Social History of Enslaved Black Women in Barbados, Centering Women, Gender Discourses in Caribbean Slave Society, and of course last year he launched his uh, uh, Britain's Black Debt, uh, which is about very much the topic uh, that he will address uh, in part today. So, I could go on and on because I have lots of notes on him. I want to stop here and ask you, ladies and gentlemen, to welcome with me Professor Sir Hilary Peppers. Vice-Chancellor and colleagues of the University of Johannesburg, all colleagues from academia, members of the diplomatic corps, and friends and students, Dr. Pinky Megwe, who is hosting me here and who invited me to make this presentation. Thank you so very much. It really is a pleasure to be here and Deputy Vice-Chancellor, I must apologize for my casual attire so elegantly assembled you are. But I found myself in Soweto a few days ago and I found a tailor in Soweto. So I had a few locally made shirts. <laughs> so I am supporting indigenous entrepreneurship. 
and I have promised to take a few back to the Caribbean, hopefully to establish an import enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> but it is really a pleasure to discuss with you in uh, this university environment a subject that is critical to our comprehension of the 21st century and, of course, very dear to all of us who are committed to the advancement of humanity. It is a subject that generates considerable controversy and contention and for obvious and for logical reasons. I am always more relaxed uh, having this conversation in a university environment because it is the environment I know best. Uh, I went to a university at the age of 17 and I have not left. <laughs> so I am a long server. But I will begin with what I consider to be, first of all, the good news. And the good news is that, in my own opinion, the largest political movement of the 21st century will be the Global African Reparatory Movement. All the continents of the planet will, in my view, experience the surge of Africa and its diaspora, its diasporas, demanding reparatory justice for the crimes against humanity committed in the establishment of European modernity. As you have heard from the Deputy Vice-Chancellor, the rise of the West as an ideological construct is associated with the application of science and technology to production, but it was also predicated on the idea that Africans as a singular racialized group could be enslaved on a global basis. And this form of chattel labor, that is the reduction of persons to the legal status of non-humans and property, could sustain the productivity and efficiency of a new global economic and financial world order. The labor of over 20 million enslaved Africans underpinned the rise of Western modernity. And I should speak not only of the, the productive labor of enslaved Africans, but also the reproductive labor of enslaved Africans, because in all of these jurisdictions across the New World, women who were the carriers of the status of slavery, their offspring, their children, were born into slavery with the status of property. And therefore, the reproductive capacity of enslaved women was equally as important as the importation of Africans. The globalization of African slavery and Western global supremacy, therefore, as you would say, went hand in chin, uh, body and soul. I am not seeking to be deterministic or mechanistic, but when we look at the 16th, 17th, and early, 16th, 17th, 18th, and early 
19th centuries. These were the high points of the globalization of African enslavement. This was the period in which we saw the construction of the world's first global labor system. Prior to this period, we cannot see anywhere in human history a unified system of labor organizations scattered across such a tremendously large geographical space. African slavery was therefore a global system with regional variations across three continents. The transatlantic slave trade was the world's largest commercial enterprise. You do not move 10 to 15 million people across, across an ocean without the most sophisticated forms of financial and commercial organization. It was also the world's first transcontinental productive system and the largest force migration in human history. The 19th century saw the eradication of these systems. It was a century of emancipation. It was a century in which in most jurisdictions in the world, the system of chattel slavery was uprooted, removed. Starting first in Haiti, where the enslaved themselves removed that system and declared in their constitution of independence on January the 1st, 1804, that slavery and slave trading are forever forbidden and represented in their constitutions as crimes. We saw in Brazil the final eradication of the slavery system in the last quarter of the 19th century. Brazil was the last of these societies to criminalize the enslavement of persons. And so it took near 100 years of effort, both by the enslaved themselves, by enlightened persons around the world, to eradicate a system that had been in place for 400 years. You do not remove a system that had been in place for 400 years in short time. It was an enormous political effort on the part of the finest minds in the world to bring an end to this global system. We saw in the 20th century the emergence of nation states built primarily by persons who are descendants of the enslaved. And so you might very well say, we have come full circle. Leaving this continent as enslaved labor, and today the descendants are the prime ministers and presidents of large numbers of nation states. It is a phenomenal feature of human development. We look into this 21st century now, and we try to imagine 
what will be the consequences, the gravity, the weight of this historical process impacting upon our futures. And we believe that as a consequence of this history, the 21st century will witness likewise as a consequence the world's first grassroots political movement, which will be a movement dedicated to reparatory justice. The question therefore is, is there a certain inevitability about this process? Well, there are some things that we know, again, from the history. And to some extent, we are privileged by the fact that we can reflect upon the Haitian case over a hundred years ago, where a society built upon slavery, the largest slave society in the New World, over 500,000 enslaved Africans, rose up with their supporters among the colored community and some supporters among the European and white anti-slavery communities formed a coalition to remove slavery from the largest slave system in the world. And to establish in its place a nation state dedicated to freedom. It is significant because Haiti was the largest slave society in the New World at the time. Every society in the New World, from Alaska in the North to Argentina in the South, every single economic system across that entire continent was built with slave labor. And here was one society in the middle of it all declaring that slavery is their crime against humanity. Now this is very significant because we have to look to see how the Haitians went about building a nation state. The first thing they sought to do was to reinsert themselves into the world economy. It was the largest producer of cane sugar, one of the largest producers of coffee, one of the largest importers of African persons. It was classified using standard economic criteria as the wealthiest plantation system the world had ever seen. But it was all destroyed by 15 years of civil war and revolution. The Haitian leadership, the Haitian revolutionary leadership, looking into the future, decided that the way forward was to reinsert this nation into the world economy. And the way to do this was to re-establish the plantation system that had been the basis of social concern. This became quite interesting because Toussaint Louverture, who led this revolution, argued that the plantation system on which half of a million Africans had been enslaved was a system of large-scale production, a system of export orientation, a system to earn foreign exchange, a system that would 
employ thousands of workers, and therefore the structure of the slave economy ought to be reestablished. And this was the first primary decision taken by the revolutionary leadership. And so the plantation system was rebuilt. The enslaved themselves had fought a war because they believed that at the end of it, there would have been land reform. There would have been land redistribution. They would have been converted into peasants, into commercial farmers. They would have been converted into owners of properties and freedom will be based upon that ownership. <coughs> Instead, they were told by their new government to return to work as laborers on the estates owned by the persons who had enslaved them. What followed in Haiti was a process of disenchantment on a popular basis. And for the next 40 years, what we witnessed was a revolution within the revolution. The workers themselves rose up against their new governments. The new governments brought up the army to oppress the uprisings of the workers. The workers insisted this is not what we fought for. The government insisted we have to globalize our economy, our society. We have to earn foreign exchange and we have to stay modern. And Haiti became an unstable social formation. The rest, as you say, is history. The society spiraled further and further into political chaos, into economic ruin. It was a choice which was made. This is a very significant choice because the workers had expected reparations. They had expected economic enfranchisement. They had expected economic empowerment to follow the process of slavery. It's important, I believe, to look also at all of the subsequent economies that have undertaken this process of nation building against the background of crimes against humanity. From the early 19th century through to the middle of the 20th century and beyond, where we have seen many new and emerging nation-states, all confronted with the same phenomenon. How to proceed? How do we balance the needs of an expectant population with the realization of integration into a global economy? In all of these societies we have looked at, especially those in the Caribbean, it is fair to conclude that there remains to this day fundamental disenchantment with the systems that were put in place at independence. Jamaica, just last year, celebrated 50 years of independence, 50 years of nation building. The British had colonized Jamaica in 1655 and had ruled Jamaica for 300 years. At the end of that process, when Jamaica became an independent nation, 
75% of the black people in Jamaica were illiterate. A community, therefore, of 75% illiteracy was asked to build a modern nation. And to do so within the context of inadequate reform in relation to reparatory justice. We are all today very concerned about the social issues in Jamaica, the ghettoization of the population, the challenges associated with an underclass, the difficulties associated with social dispossession, and a belief that the system of state administration does not represent justice. This is a model that can be applied across the entire Caribbean. That despite a commitment to democracy, a popular commitment, there remains disenchantment with the relationships of governance. And why is this? The history of slavery has left behind a phenomenal legacy. The legacy is seen in these societies on a daily basis. In all of these societies, the black community who represents the majority are economically marginalized and disenfranchised. In my own island of Barbados, that is known not only for its tourism, but for its cricketing genius, <laughs> and my brother, who was with me here uh, this evening, was one such aspirant to West Indies cricket status. But all of us grew up in the search of that excellence. But when we examined why there was this popular obsession among the black community with cricket, it was because it was the only way out of the ghetto. It was the only way out of poverty. Now, the independence model that was built in Barbados, and I was an independence baby, I entered, I entered high school at the age of 10, precisely in our independence year. And it was argued that the independence process was fought for in order to empower my generation. But the division of labor which was established for governance remains problematic 47 years later. The system was that the white community that had monopolized the economic resources of the island for 300 years who were the descendants of the enslavers would remain in possession of the management of the economy and the vast majority of the black people, 97% of the citizens, who are in control of the political process have established a system whose sustainability is now being questioned. Despite the fact that the white community of Barbados 
owns 70% of the capital on the island and are the owners of the entrepreneurial system, there are no white persons in the elected parliament of the island. It is because the black community refuses to elect white citizens into the parliament. The white citizens will say, therefore, that we are going to control the senior and elite management of the companies, of the corporations. We will monopolize the wealth, and therein we have a standoff. The biggest challenge facing this society and many other societies in the Caribbean is how to get beyond this. How to move beyond this. How to say that this is not sustainable, it is not a system of equality and justice, and it is not a 21st century system of governance. The process of bringing the two sides together in order to build a sustainable democracy remains a primary challenge 47 years after independence. This is of great concern to all of us who are irretrievable believers in the fundamental equality of all human beings and the rights to justice for everyone. Now, the reparatory discussion says the following things. Justice is crafted by human agency. It requires philosophical reflection and the production of philosophical knowledge. It requires, importantly, persons who will stand in defense of the principle of equality in all areas of life. And it requires, fundamentally, persons who are prepared to make sacrifices in defense of these values. In recent times, we have seen the civil society movement in the Caribbean pushing aggressively for a discussion in respect of reparative justice. We have entered into conversations with <coughs> European governments. In fact, I was the principal spokesman for the Caribbean nations at the Durban Conference here in 2001, the United Nations Conference on Race, Xenophobia and Intolerance. And we sought to discuss these matters in an environment best suited to formulate a new vision, the United Nations Forum. The position of the European nations and Durban were clear that there can be no discussion at an intergovernmental level in respect of reparations because no crime had been committed. The position of all of the European nations that were engaged in slave trade and slavery in Durban and since has been that slavery was not illegal 
because the governments of Europe had legalized the process. And slave trading was not illegal because the parliaments of Europe had deemed this form of commerce to be legal. Now, one might very well respond to this by saying that the crimes against humanity committed against the Jewish community in Germany and in other parts of Europe and the Holocaust against the Jewish community, that it was also legal because the German parliament had also legalized it. But the critical thing is that international law recognizes that when crimes are committed against humanity, those who commit those crimes cannot hide behind national law. National law is no protector of persons who commit crimes against humanity. Then we were told by the European Union who represented the Western discourse that these crimes, if they could be so recognized, took place a very long time ago and are now too remote to be subject to recuperatory discussions. And the theory of remoteness, which is embedded in British common law, where time expires, suggests that this cannot be subject to discussion in any court of law. But the countervailing principle, of course, is that of human memory, of living memory. A crime is not considered too remote if it is within living memory. There are people in the Caribbean whose grandparents were African slaves. There are still households in the Caribbean where the memory of slavery exists in elders who were transported to the Caribbean in the 19th century and whose grandchildren were raised by these enslaved persons. It is therefore not remote in that context, neither is it remote in Brazil where slavery was abolished, as I have said, in the 1880s, two generations ago in terms of living memory. Then we were told, and you might very well find this if you examine the discussions in the British House of Parliament in 2007, when Parliament engaged in conversation in respect of the bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade. The British Parliament concluded that even if we are prepared to accept that these were crimes, these crimes were too large to be subject to meaningful conversation. That the crime of slavery and slave trading were so large, the enormity of it, the global scope of it, the magnitude of it, was far too large to be subject to a conversation in a court of law or in any established tribunal. It's just too large. And one of the finest statements of this came from Lord Morris of Hansworth, who is a Jamaican who grew up in Britain from Jamaica and distinguished himself as a trade unionist. And he argued in the House of Lords that while his foreparents were enslaved in Jamaica, and he feels very strongly about that, as a descendant of the slaves, he isn't sure where to begin. He says, my imagination cannot comprehend the scope of a conversation to deal with this tragic development. 
And it is so large that the best thing to do is to close the books, forget it, and move on. And that was his contribution to that conversation in the House of Lords. I had the pleasure of meeting him in Jamaica and, and telling him that my imagination can comprehend the conversation. <laughs> then two members of the British House of Parliament of the Commons rose and told the Speaker that they will not support a reparatory conversation simply because African peoples have an unlimited capacity for human forgiveness. <laughs> and that he had traveled throughout Africa. And what impressed him more than any other feature was the capacity of African peoples to forgive. <laughs> and therefore he would call upon them to do so in this context. But much more aggressively were those arguments that stated that since the nation-building project had commenced in these post-slavery and post-apartheid societies, that European governments had given millions of dollars of aid to these countries, and that aid was in lieu of reparations. And furthermore, that the failure of political leadership in these societies to eradicate poverty, but instead to preside over the increase of poverty. And there are some societies where the level of poverty has intensified since the nation-building project commenced, that this had to do with black incompetence in respect of governance. That there is a cultural problem of incompetence and in governance in black communities and therefore no reparations can resolve that problem. Now these are the arguments that you are asked to contend with in an effort to see if the future can be crafted in an orderly and civilized fashion. There was also the question of intimidation. There is no doubt that most of these new nation states, their leaderships, felt intimidated by the new, by the global order. Many prime ministers, many presidents, many ministers of governments will say to you, if we brought this discussion into our parliaments, we will have to answer to the World Bank, we will have to answer to the IMF, we will have to answer to multinational corporations and we will have to answer to investors, to global investors. Now, we can conclude then that there is a deep polarization in the world on this question. Reparations has been conceptualized as the antithesis to aid. It has been conceptualized as a retreat from forgiveness. Some African governments instead, especially those in West Africa, have argued for something called the New African Initiative 
In Durban in 2001, we were told by three or four very large and prominent African states, uh, primarily Nigeria, 